discussion. Yeah, so, uh, so call employees that to uh, this week just to kind of catch up and start things off before we talk about the reading. I read No Exit this week. Um, yeah. Cool. Yeah, like all the plays or like just that specific? Uh, I read all of No Exit. I am um, in the middle of uh, the whatever the, the one about uh, Orestes. Um, yeah. And Zeus. Yeah. Yeah, that one is great. What do you think? I mean, I think it's, yeah, I think it's great. I mean, no, it's fascinating, though. Um, I was I was struck by the fact that it's like, uh, um, or, uh, like the age of reason, it also involves um, what to do with an unwanted pregnancy. Okay, you're gonna have to remind me. It's, it's um, like, you know, yeah, that, I mean, also, hi, Karen. Um, if you're listening, um, so, I mean, so no exits, it's about three people in hell, and, um, I think part of the journey of the play is trying to figure out why they're in hell, because they all are lying through their teeth, but one of them, so it's three people, uh, Garçon, Estelle and Inez, and Estelle is a youngish woman, I guess, and it turns out she uh, committed infanticide. Oh, she yes, drowned her that's, baby. That's right. Oh my gosh, that's yeah, that's horrible. That's horrifying. Right, and yeah, they each have kind of like these desires. I think like Garcon was. Like he's worried that he's a coward, and yeah, and so he never like did the thing that he needed to do for his own freedom. And then I can't remember what um, Inez's deal was. I, I mean, and yeah, that's a good question. I'm not quite sure I know what all three of their deals are, but you were, I mean, yes, Garçon is definitely a coward. Um, Inez is cruel. So it sounds like she, yeah, she's a lesbian, and she kind of bullied a woman to leave her husband, and was then teased, and then the man died, her husband died, and she teased her husband, as she teased the woman, that it was uh, their fault that they killed him. And then, if I'm understanding correctly, and then um, the woman did a murder-suicide. So, yeah, I think she's cruel. Um, I'm not positive, though. I mean, she's definitely cruel. I think that's why she's in hell. Yeah, and she's also, I, I think that's kind of also bullying Estelle and kind of frustrated that Estelle is trying to seduce Garcon who doesn't really want to right. be seduced. But, and she's, so I guess she's kind of frustrated maybe in the same way that uh, Sartre writes Daniel in Lodge de Raison because he's also kind of frustrated of being like, I guess, the minority in a very hetero world where he has to you know, figure out, even in like chapter eight, what we're going to talk about today, I think, or maybe it's chapter nine, but when he is meeting, when he sees Boris in that bookstore where Boris is about to like 
steal a thesaurus or something right. like that. That's a very weird chapter. Yeah. And he gets kind of frustrated because, well, one, because he kind of gets rejected by Boris, but he gets, he's frustrated in that chapter with that rejection because he kind of starts blaming Matthew because Matthew, in a sense, has control over or has, the, has captured the, uh, the affections and attentions of his younger male students. Um, like 
Wars lover for a while. Oh, I didn't know who that was. Yeah, well, I think I think that's in the screenshot that you sent me, but so I guess maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. No, you're oh, no, you're right about that. I, 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 you know, I forgot. I'm sure, but I didn't realize what the lover thing. Um, oh yeah, yeah. I don't remember if he was. I think maybe he was American, and she was like kind of late in her in life, in her career, or in the letters, I guess. Like she stayed at his house somewhere. In I think you're getting two people confused. Oh really? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Oh. Okay. I think maybe actually Karen would probably know better than either, or Apple would know probably better than either of us actually. Okay. Yeah. Maybe I'll have to to look at your. I remember that. There's like Paul Hazan was like a friend of Sartre, and like he was killed I think in the war. Um. And um. I know he was a friend of Royal Pussy's also, and I think they both write very fondly about him. And kind of, like, it's definitely one of those, you know, when you read their stuff from after the war, it's like one of those moments where you can, like, see the, you know, the time, <laughs> the time of their right, their philosophical writing, like, drifting in, the, you know, the, the situation um, really clearly. Okay, interesting. Yeah, maybe the names are, are similar. I just thought that was the same person. I don't know. I'll have, I'll have to look back through Wars, uh, through her, yeah, her letters itself. But, but anyway, that's yeah, that's yep. so interesting. Yep. Um, there was, you know, I am reading um, Existentialism is a Humanism, which oh, I know you've read, and I I thought it was interesting because he talks about how their fiction is criticized. Um, it says that in light of, uh, if people criticize our works of fiction in which we describe characters who are spineless, weak, cowardly, and sometimes even frankly evil, it is not just because these characters are spineless, weak, cowardly, or evil, for if like Zola, we were to blame their behavior or their, on their heredity or environmental influences, their society or factors of an organic or psychological nature, people would be reassured. So he's basically saying that existentialist characters, and I think this is probably the same with like Camus and The Stranger, that they, the readers dislike them and are unnerved because there isn't a good reason for why they are the way they are. I don't know, I thought it was interesting. What do you think about that in Sartre's ex explanation? I think it's fascinating. I mean, I definitely, it, I mean, the Zola thing is very interesting because, I mean, that was, um, the Zola remark is very interesting because, you know, I, I have not read any Zola, but I did read a lot about Cezanne Zola, and we saw the movie, yes. um, which was very entertaining. And, um, so great. Yeah, it's really funny you've seen it. <laughs> um, but, I mean, that was my understanding, is that was Zola's goal, to show how, you know, he was believed in psychologism and, um, like, to show how human beings' psychology is determined by, you know, Darwinism and the situation in society, etc. Like, so he saw himself, again, this is my understanding, as doing, uh, as like, you know, kind of writing fiction um, inspired by cutting-edge science of the 1860s or whatever. Oh, wow, okay, yeah, I haven't read Zola yet either. Um, I had a few of his novels, but... 
yeah, I just thought that the, I think someone uh, commented on my Instagram because I was, you know, talking about the relationship between Beauvoir um, and then the female student lovers that she is writing about and someone mentioned that there was like a contentious relationship between, you know, this artist and writer and so I was like, oh, I have to check it out because I love, I love like the, the relationships behind the, the writings. Definitely. Yeah. Well, how interesting. All right, well, should we... But, but, then, but then for Sartre, like, obviously it's all about freedom. Like, you aren't determined by your psychology or your past or anything. So it would make sense if you would see Zola as his arch nemesis in terms of, or his, you know, his polar opposite in terms of how he's thinking about writing because Sartre's characters aren't intended to be free and they're not intended to be determined. Um... Retrospectively, oh, okay. Um, like, but I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, because that's what psychologists are trying to do as well. Like, when you think about like Freud or just whoever, it's like that's what heals you to get out of to recognize how you're affected by your past and how these neuroticisms 
have been formed because you like keep cycling back to them in adulthood and to like transcend your past is it isn't that like the basis of like freudian psychology and like even therapy today to like recognize what's holding you back and to transcend it to be in your own freedom and make your choices about who you are sounds good yeah <laughs> yeah i don't know i mean yeah that makes a lot of sense things but you you do have drives for like i mean in freud don't you the determine how you act um that you know that push you like you have i don't know the drives like the the sex drive the death drive i don't i don't know all the drives um that push you towards certain ends um right i mean i guess yeah like you were saying like biological determinism you can't really you know. separate yourself from your you know evolved animal nature and your instincts you can only kind of tame them i guess it also sounds kind of platonic to me right like the chariot and like the untamed horse the untamed horse needs to put in mind yeah huh interesting yeah that would be that would be really cool to like read some kind of academic secondary literature on like the psychology existential psychology of sartre yeah definitely i i mean yeah yeah i think i said this but like the last like 100 pages of being nothingness is about that um, oh okay but it is the last 100 pages. yeah i'm still on like page 200 and it's really <laughs> i gotta say i meant to warn you like the temporality section is one of the easiest places to stall out uh. okay. okay yeah no i mean i'm, I'm working on it but sometimes it's yeah it's a tough book. It's to a tough read book. It it's tough. I I just think that it's fascinating how much like I really like reading Sartre's fiction, and I also really enjoy his short essays. But like being enough is a slog. Like it's fascinating. It has a lot of great stuff in it, but it's just it's such a hard read, and it's so dense compared to everything else. To like his more popular writings. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's very dense. That's why like sometimes I'm taking two hours to read like 15 pages or even less because it's like I'm making notes and I'm underlining and then you know some parts I just don't understand at all and so I'm like I'm gonna circle back to that when I'm like three years yeah 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 but yeah you're right it's really nice that he has written so many different genres like I'm reading The Wall right now like his short stories and they are amazing I mean I thought his plays were great but he is a master at this short story genre or I don't know from my perspective it's like like these are just so well written his characters are so interesting and it just it just really brings home to me what existential literature could be really yeah yeah definitely I don't know if you've read the contemporary short story writer Tao Lin he has like a short a collection of short stories called Bed no I haven't Okay, I would recommend that to you because that's kind of a, like, I, you know, I read him before I read the, the existential literature of Sartre, and, and and that was, that helped me understand what it is, and I, I see a connection between them for sure, and like, just the almost like nonsensical ways that the characters are like the almost like the absurdity in the, the, the characters. I don't know. You'll maybe. I, I think I have like maybe like a short story of his that I can just send you like so you can read it for free. <laughs> yeah, that'd be awesome. I, I would definitely check that out. 
Yeah, he's so interesting. But I would definitely recommend his short stories because I, like, there's this story about this woman who is married to, uh, I guess, I guess her husband is a, a, a schizophrenic. And so, but he's, like, on this slow descent to really, like, it really, like, being a problem in his life and I guess there's no treatment for it or something at this yeah. time and her, and her father is trying to say you know like you are smart you're intelligent you don't get dragged down by this illness and then you know and she in her own interiority is just feeling like well you know my husband's the only one I want I understand and I want to think like he thinks and she tries to like be involved in his delusions and you know the paranoid delusions that he has about people wow. To like, you know, attack him in his room, and she like closes her eyes, and she she's like, I can almost feel them. Yes, I can feel them against my, you know, my flesh or my arm or something. And and yeah, it's just like a weird slow descent herself into her own like strange desires. And I I don't know, but I, it's just like it blew my mind. I was like, damn, he is he is a good writer, like a good fiction wow. short story writer. It's blowing my mind. That's terrifying. Yeah, no, it is. It's really disturbing. You're like, I mean, yeah, I have wondered in the past if I've like made myself sick because someone around me is sick. But like to go to send it to Matt is so like right. sympathetically. I, yeah, I know. It's like you see like she's still so like attracted to him and I don't know, yeah. It's really interesting and uh, yeah, all of the stories are yeah, send it, if you send it to me, I'll read it if you have, if, you know, if you have a copy. Okay. You can send it to me, yeah. That's yeah, fascinating. For sure. Somewhat terrifying, honestly, Jesus. Yeah, no, but it's, it's like, it's like lovely. So, <laughs> anyways. So, assuming uh, we should be moving yeah. on to the Yeah, Okay. Cool. <laughs> oh, I think we lost Apple. I hope she comes back. Um, yeah, where's Apple? She should come back. Okay, so I think I went through the part about Jacques, but then they're still in chapter eight if you wanted to go over it and you wanted yeah, to right. do it. I think the next part is about Marcel, and then there's also a part about Boris and Brunet at Matthew's apartment. So I don't know what you want to go over, but that's the, that's the rest of chapter eight. Yeah, chapter eight is probably, I think it's by far the longest chapter. Yeah. Um. I think the Marcel part starts like on page 141. If you need like a reference. I do, yes. I haven't, I actually have not read this in a while, so. Yeah. <laughs> um, right, okay. Do you want to talk about the Marcel thing? Like, what Marcel should talk, what they talk about here? Yeah, sure. I can throw out some, some yeah. quotes for you to kind of remember. Um, so. So Marcel, basically, so Matthew is calling Marcel in, in this part to discuss the abortion doctor and price. Um, also, like, he's, yeah, I think that's it. And then, like, I wrote down the quote on page 143. A woman who says that hasn't the right to switch over to the sentimental view that surely would be an abuse of confidence, and Marcel is capable of that, she would have told me. So I think that's Matthew, like, kind of contemplating he's kind of struggling because i think maybe part of him knows that or is afraid that marcel like wants to really like talk about this instead of like he 
already deciding that he's gonna like find the abortion doctor. And so my question with just right with that was, can Matthew expect more of others than he gives? Can we truly know one another? Because he's basically complaining because like she's changing her mind and she should have talked to him, but we have talked to, we've said in the past that Matthew isn't like, doesn't have full disclosure, like doesn't tell everyone straightforwardly what he thinks. Yeah, that's a, right, so, um, yeah, so, um, Matthew is definitely not open with his thoughts. He's very closed. He just makes decisions and acts on them. I mean, really, he doesn't make decisions, but he doesn't ask for other people's input. He's not going to talk things over. Um, but what was your, sorry, what was your question? I think I... Oh, I was, um, you know, I guess from one perspective, I, I could feel that, well, Marcel could be more open and Matthew could oh, yeah. be more open, yeah. but, you know, ultimately, can we truly know one another, even if we make the, that effort to try to communicate what we feel? Well, okay, let me throw this question back at you. I mean, so you've read... You read Bovar's letters. Yeah. Um, what, I mean, what, that was their goal, right? Bovar and Sartre, to be completely open with each other. Oh, yeah. For sure. And I think they did. I think they achieved that. I mean, from their letters, which, of course, you know, that's a piece of work that's edited in itself because there's there was probably some editing going on. It's just in stark contrast to Bovar's She Came to Stay because... And she came to stay the Beauvoir character, Francois, and so maybe that's an unenlightened Beauvoir, is totally wrapped in jealousy and self-isolation. But in the letters of Beauvoir, and even Sartre to Beauvoir, they seem very transparent, very happy, joyous even. And they share each other's sorrows with other lovers, and they, they continually repeat the, the, you know, the phrase, we are one, you know, and so, so yeah, I, I feel like they achieved that if you can believe their letters, which I feel like to some extent you can. One of, you know, um, Witness to My Life begins with a series of letters from Sartre to someone else, Simone Jolivet, who I guess Sartre was right. into, had something of a relationship with, and the Beauvoir letters only begin about 50, about 40 pages in or whatever. Um, and they have, some, they have a very different tone. Oh, really? <gasps> oh, okay. Well, okay. What would you, you, you say about that? I mean, well, I think it's, I, I think Sartre is, so the, that's funny. The first one he's writing to is, is also named Simone, Simone Jolivet. Huh? And I, I think she was also, I don't know who she was. There's so many names in these yeah. writings. There's just so many names. Um, and I think Sartre is nice. He flatters her. He gives her suggestions about how to live her life. He's, he talks about himself. Uh, it's much, it's, it reads kind of like, I don't know. He has like a crush on her or whatever. Okay. 
every, you, you know, it's, it's that kind of, it's sweet, but it's also, like, maybe a trifle condescending. Um, okay, because he's trying to, like, capture her. Maybe. Yeah, I think so. Okay. And maybe there's some ambivalence from her, and, like, he comments on that, but, like, he calls her my sweet little girl. Which I think is meant to be complimentary. She probably takes it that way. It's funny because you read some of the same language. Um, especially I noticed it in no exit. The reason is just because I was reading it after I was reading all started reading it. Um, but then when it gets to Beauvoir, like, I, I find there, like, I mean, I, I just started the Beauvoir section, only a couple letters into it. And, like, I don't know, he speaks to her like an equal. He speaks to her like someone he like respects who he just assumes underst- understands everything he says. Yeah. Um, it's less luxury. Um, I don't know, what, does that fit with your reading of Beauvoir's letters to him? Oh yeah, no, they, they seem like they are, they're happy telling each other that they are equal partners. Yeah. And then they speak to each other like that. Yeah, no, it's a total contrast to, so I haven't read a, letters to the other Simone, but it's in total contrast to the letters between Martin Heidegger and Hannah Arendt. That's fun. Where it's like, it's just all condescending. It's, it's a weird codependent, like, relationship. I don't know. It's, it's so weird. <laughs> I, I don't. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's almost cringy. I don't know. <laughs> really? Where did you read those? Um, um, it's in, uh, I don't know, it's just this book that's out of print that has their letters as, like, both of their letters, except not very many by Hannah Arendt, because he didn't keep hers. So, if we take the kind of, like, if we assume that the Sartre-Beauvoir relationship is their ideal, is mm-hmm. Sartre's ideal, which I, I mean, I don't know if it's a full ideal, but it's at least a partial, I mean, so they are transparent, they do talk to each other. I'm not sure they, I, I, we don't know if they discuss, I mean, maybe maybe it's clear, maybe I'll get further in, it'll be clear they discuss but like they definitely aren't closed off the way Matthew is um, or Marcel um, so clearly I guess I guess I'm just thinking that even from Sarah's perspective Matthew and Marcel are not fulfilling a good relationship at, at all yeah absolutely no that's a really good point to like compare and I did find letters actually going back to letters again when Sartre is talking about Marcel he says that Sartre says that one of his problems that he has or the, the problems that he sees the book having is that Matthew okay so this is the quote quote that Matthew isn't interested enough in Marcel that a reader doesn't feel strongly enough that he's fond of her and to show that it's not enough to make Marcel more interesting he himself must seem more taken with her, I'll work on it. Marcel must be, and this is I think the important part, Marcel must be the symbol of that whole life of intellectual and moral comfort where he isn't free. So like to me that quote like indicates that this couple in Lodge de Raison between Matthew and Marcel, they're like not meant to be together. They're on two different trajectories. Whereas yeah. Sartre and Boulevard, like they're just like their desires and their lifestyles and their goals and their philosophies like match up. So, um, is that, what is that in there? Is that in Quiet Moments in a War or what is that? That's in, yeah, that's in Quiet Moments on page 
start, at least in that essay, he argues that that um, the French were ironically more free under the Nazis rather than less free because the danger and the constant threat um, made them aware now and committing to projects right now because you could die at any moment. Um, does, that, does that make sense? Yeah, no, I love that quote because I guess it was so controversial that he would yes. like say anything positive <laughs> about that. But yeah, he said that if people even had a thought of their own, that was rebellious. Right. That was, that was a chance of freedom. So it made every single decision and act um, you know, have this tremendous weight. Right. And so, right, so, uh, you know, when he's talking about the intellectual and moral comfort um, that Marcel symbolizes to Matthew, I think for Sartre, he's suggesting that, you know, that intellectual and moral comfort, comfort is a sign of a lack of freedom. Right. Yeah, or that it may distract you. Sure. You, you could get lost in it, like, you know, you're too blissfully... Yeah. ignorant you're too complacent yeah yeah you become complacent instead of right yeah and i, I think that's yes exactly um. but i just wonder like why can't you be both why can't you enjoy like does it always have to be such a struggle Because honestly, and going back to the letters again, when Sartre yeah. is talking, I mean, I don't know what you think and what you've read of the letters, but Sartre seems like very like happy go lucky. Like, I mean, maybe that's like not that's the best fun. stage, but he seems like he always talks about in the letters that I'm reading quiet moments in the 1940 that he's like oh I, I had such a poetic mo- a moment and, and I love the cold and like embracing the pain and he's just like he's so both he and Beauvoir are just like in love with life almost like they don't the only angst they have comes from the drama from the inappropriate relationships that they try to like connect with and maintain you know just their their polyamory gives them angst but that's just because they like can't keep the peace for very long because of various jealousies and things like that but otherwise like they seem like to be in a sweet spot of flow consistently yeah that's ironic it's like why don't they they let their characters be that but i don't know i guess it's you know it's not what i mean to what extent so like that's interesting and i mean you you're further along the letters than i am I mean, they did see themselves as resisting certain bourgeois tendencies, right? Mm, yeah, that's true. I mean, they seem kind of not a big deal from my perspective, but 
Um, I mean, being in a corporate relationships were at least partially their way of kind of challenging that. Am I wrong? I mean, or at least that they saw it that way? desire to have those relationships but rather than it being like an intellectual kind of decision but yeah you're right because now that you say that I'm kind of thinking about their other conflicts as well like Beauvoir often comments in the interviews that I see of her on YouTube that you know she's not well liked in various feminist circles and she's she kind of I don't know is resigned but also maybe doesn't like the fact that there's there's so much resistance so maybe it's just they just don't talk about everything in their letters that could be a source of, of strife or angst i mean it's interesting because they were incredibly successful like ridiculously successful yeah like they did not leave, live by any stretch of the imagination hard lives no not once they not once the money started coming in from lectures and your research only and not have to worry about you know yeah <laughs> undergraduate requirements or whatever right right yeah you don't have to be you're you know you're less of a, of a slave you know it's not like publish or perish like they just like everything they wrote was i guess gold they had their own like journal and yeah i don't know i mean they certainly like in many ways their aspects of their lives are like to be idolized and admired by intellectuals. 
So do you think, I mean, it, it, there's a real danger in, like, like, I, 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 okay, so, like, I mean, are they just hypocrites then? Like who? I guess Sartre. I mean, I, I guess, I mean, I don't know enough about Pumar. Um, you know, I mean, is it just, I moved really straight from the book, but I mean, is there kind of condemning of bourgeois culture? And their praise of the, you know, the resistance during the Nazi occupation, Vichy France. Was that like, I, I don't know, is that? Okay, I, I see what you're saying. Because um... that's like an easy leap to make. I, I'm not saying we should make it, I'm just, I, that's an easy leap to make. It'd be an easy step. Um, well, maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe, maybe, maybe we just, we should just focus on their philosophy and not worry so much about their lives. Um, yeah, yeah, that could be. I mean, it's, it's hard to know, right? I mean, it depends, you know, what exactly you need for the bourgeois life. Like, I think for them, it was very much being bourgeois was staying in one place, doing like all the traditional things, like having a respectable job, having a respectable family, like getting married, having kids. So I think how maybe they would define the bourgeois that they wanted to stay away from right. is might be like slightly like there might be different interpretations of what that that would mean. Like for them, it didn't yeah. mean that they couldn't enjoy material or sensual things or couldn't travel like they were just they were against like the tradition and that's what they saw that was problematic so i think that's interesting that makes a lot of sense first of all it it right so you can still see the see it so the tension it's it's more about the question of the struggle like you you said something like does it really have to be that hard like do we really only encounter freedom or authenticity i should say like, um, when we're faced with the death at every possible moment, um, like when every choice is made against, you know, uh, is, uh, is made knowing that it could lead to one's death. Um. And I take it like, uh, yeah, right. Um, I mean, I guess just not every. Go. No, I mean, I think that's good. No, I think that I think that you're right. This conversation kind of helped me, made me see that I don't have to take intellectual and moral comfort so, like, literally because, like, I don't know. Because Beauvoir and Sartre had a, had a particular. I mean, the thing is, is that Sartre and Beauvoir just like naturally had an inclination for what went against society. And so, like, can we blame though people like Marcel, who may just have a natural inclination for whatever happens to be the dominant bourgeois rewarded kind of lifestyle? Like, some people just. Like, they, they're not trying to conform out of bad faith. They just really are well-suited to the dominant threads and themes of their society and historical time. 
I mean, now you're sounding dangerously like Zola. Oh no. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> you, you know what I mean, though, right? Like, natural inclinations. I mean, I mean, I'm not saying that those natural inclinations cannot be changed. They, they might have, you know, we might have just allowed ourselves to grow into. I don't know. I mean, I mean, do, do natural inclinations have to be deterministic? I mean, it's the it's the difference between like you know different tastes. Like, can I blame myself for like strawberry ice cream? And that's the majority of what my culture, you know, like you can't find chocolate. So I'm not railing against being an activist for chocolate ice cream because I just I already like strawberry. You know, I mean, I can see people who are like suffering because they hate strawberry and they want chocolate and they have to go to another country to have chocolate. Like it's that kind of a thing. Like, can you blame the people who just like what is dominant? Yeah, that okay. That's fair. Fair response. Um, Choices, knowing 
that every choice death is a fine um people just kind of go about their lives and they they lie to themselves about their freedom or they lie they, you know they lie to themselves they by denying their freedom they lie to themselves about death always being on the line um Yes. Okay. I think, thank you. That, that brings us back. Yeah. So when I was kind of making a case for Marcel and asking like, can we blame her? If she is one who just is naturally inclined to what bourgeois society puts pressure on us to be, then that's an exception. But you're, I think you're on the right track to like helping us figure out the point of this conversation or where we need to land because, because most people are not. If Marcel is that, or if, you know, person A, B, and C is that, that's not most people, like you said. Most people are in bad faith and they're lying to themselves, trying to convince themselves and others that they're happy conforming when they're actually not. And they would, they only need to reflect on that to be in distress and be in that place, that sweet spot that Sartre wants us to be in. And like in the space where we need to make a decision and make a choice that might not conform. Yeah, I think, I think you, you got it. Thanks. Yeah. Alright. <laughs> well, that was too basic. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's I, I think I, I think you're right to raise the question of Marcella. Like she's very important to the plot, but she doesn't we don't get a lot from her perspective. Um Yeah, because just because sorry just because Matthew isn't, you know, like he would be in bad faith if he or he would be in trouble if he just like submitted to the intellectual and moral comfort where he isn't free which is marcel it doesn't mean marcel is in bad faith for being marcel that's true i, I mean I, my tendency is to i think i do think she's probably in bad faith um i'm not sure how um why do I think she's in bad faith? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, I think she's in bad faith only because she wants to be with Matthew and she wants to align with him or she wants him to join her. But I don't think she's in bad faith with like wanting a, her kid. I mean, I think I, oh, that I think is true. I, sorry, that I agree with. Yes. Oh. I don't think she's in bad faith for wanting a kid. Yes. Um, I guess I do think you, I mean, I think I appreciate that you're trying to kind of rescue bourgeois values. Because, <laughs> like, I'm very bourgeois. And <laughs> I'm drinking Starbucks right now. <laughs> but, um,. I don't know, maybe that's just something to keep in mind. I'm not sure. I, 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 I mean, I don't, I, I guess I'm just not sure Marcel is like portrayed very nicely, if you know what I mean. Like, she just seems kind of dumpy and like kind of pathetic, don't, don't you think? Or am I? Yeah, no, I, I agree. I totally agree with you. And I think she's just, but I mean, for Sartre, I think. Marcel is kind of like maybe even 
collateral damage because he's most interested in Matthew. He's he wants to form Marcel to be an appropriate like I guess obstacle or something or temptation for yeah. his main character Matthew. And like I mean yeah and like I mean. Yeah, I hate to say it, but like, you know, she's a temptation. Yeah, exactly. And on the other hand, you also have Daniel, who didn't talk about much today, who, you know, is going to marry Marcel, I think. Right, I mean, yeah, I mean. He's going to be co-companion, like, that is so sad. I mean, Marcel's going to be married, or at least in a relationship with someone who's gay, (laughs) who's using her to punish himself. Um because he can't be in a relationship with a man. Right. Yeah, so so Marcel is also, you know, a temptation for Daniel as well, our, like, what we yeah. think, our second main character. So, yeah, so Marcel is...